0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. As we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is ready to conclude this epistle to the Corinthian church, one in which he has answered, Many of the questions that the Corinthians had written to him about and one in which he had dealt with problems that he had heard existed in the Corinthian church. Now Paul is going to conclude the letter with a lengthy chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, along with a shorter chapter, chapter 16, in which he is going to focus on the resurrection of the saints from the dead provided for by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here Paul wants to remind the Corinthian church of Now, this is fascinating because he, of course, had already preached in the flesh the gospel to the Corinthian believers while they were still unbelievers. He had, in fact, spent a year and six months in Corinth doing the work of the Lord, preaching the gospel. But now he is going to teach the Corinthians as believers. He's preached to them, and now he is going to teach He's going to declare, remind, and reteach them the gospel message. Now, this is important because we must be reminded quite continually of the gospel message. Paul, fascinatingly enough, wrote the book of Romans, which is an in-depth look at the gospel to Christians. You see, we need continual teaching about that initial belief. We forever need the gospel to be unpacked for us to discover the treasure of what Christ has given to us and not only to discover it, but to be reminded, to be renewed, to be refreshed in it. In fact, as you look at verse 1 and 2, you'll notice five words that declare our interaction with the gospel. He says, I want you to be reminded of it. He said he would preach it. He said they had received it. He said they were standing in it, and then he said, number five, that they were being saved by it. Uh, they, of course, had been positionally saved, justified, and one day would be glorified, ultimately saved, but right now they're being sanctified. They are being saved from their sin by the power of the Lord through the gospel. Then he declares the gospel in verse three when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also Received. Here, Paul is going to talk about some facts and events that he delivered to the Corinthian church, and it seems to be some kind of Christian creed that Paul is declaring. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Jesus definitely died. I mean, reading the records of the gospel accounts. There were professional Roman executioners. There was a vicious scourging and beating involved in Jesus' pre-cross events. There was the crucifixion itself, which was a public death, followed by a spear in the side, a centurion's proclamation And enemies, not friends, but enemies reporting it to Pontius Pilate that Jesus had died. He was certainly dead. Then Paul says that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Uh, All of the animal sacrifices and places like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 declared to us that his death was a substitutionary death. Paul goes on in verse four to say that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, Jesus, just as much as he died on the cross, he was also buried. Approximately 100 pounds of burial spices, similar to mummification, were placed around his body. He was put in a public tomb that everyone knew about. The tomb was closed with a stone door and a seal was placed upon it to make it tamper resistant and not only that but the tomb was guarded by trained killers who would die if they failed in their mission now he was definitely buried and then Paul says he verse 4 rose again that he rose again that he was raised on the third day and He will deal with that when he talks about the eyewitnesses, which we'll see in a moment. But he says, according to the scriptures. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is less obvious in the Old Testament predictions. It seems implied in that you see the suffering Messiah and the glorious Messiah. So it seems implied that he would suffer, then have to rise from the dead in order to fulfill the glorious predictions. It also seems foreshadowed in places like Abraham's potential offering of Isaac that God stopped him from, or Jonah in the belly of the fish. And it is specified in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So it's in the Old Testament scriptures, but somewhat by implication and and also not as brightly as the substitutionary death was with the sacrificial system and all of the predictions. He goes on to say in verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, here, Paul mentions a few different groups. He mentions Peter, that's Cephas, who was singled out by Jesus in his appearance. And it's very evident in looking at Peter's life that Peter saw the resurrected Lord. His life changed radically. He was seen also by the twelve, or the disciples, kind of a generic title for all of them put together. And, of course, critics say that the disciples made up the story of the resurrection for personal gain. But the problem with that view is that there was no personal gain for them. And eventually when that happens, and it's done for personal gain, but there's this pressure and persecution, someone always eventually cracks, but none of them ever did. And they never demonstrate the character traits of liars. But modern critics do actually have something to gain from criticizing the resurrection, but the original disciples, they had nothing to gain by promoting the resurrection of Christ. He also mentions in verse 6, 500 brothers at one time, this was a meeting in Galilee with many people who were still alive, which is what Paul mentions, and then also in verse 7, James, regarded as the brother of Jesus, he became a real fixture in the Jerusalem church. The apostles, so a different title, they had kind of graduated from disciple mode into apostolic mode because they were going to write scripture but also be sent into all the world. And Jesus appeared to them before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And then also to Paul, who was born out of season on, there on the road to Damascus. He felt that he had come to Christ you know, later than the others and was born out of due time. haunted Paul that he had persecuted the church. He says, I persecuted the church of God. He remembered consenting to Stephen's death. He remembered pursuing believers all the way to Damascus. Uh, He, in one sense, was a beautiful witness of the resurrection of Christ, just like Peter and the 500 and James and the rest of the disciples, because he was unlikely to believe unless it was really true. He lost everything. He lost his status, his wealth, his comfort, his future, his family by coming to Christ. And Paul responded to what the Lord had done for him by working very hard. That's why he says "By that I worked harder than all of them. And, you know, I don't think any of the disciples or apostles would have argued with Paul's assertion. Now, if Christ, verse 12, is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So in response to all of this, Paul is going to address a false doctrine that had begun to flow around the Corinthian church. And the false doctrine seemed to be not the denial of Jesus's resurrection, but a denial of a future resurrection of the saints. It seems that they were denying heaven and glorified body and were instead preaching that this life is all that there is. So he goes on to say, but if there's no, verse 13, resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If that's true, if there's no future resurrection, Paul says, then it follows that Jesus never rose from the dead. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now in that larger paragraph, what Paul is saying is that if Christ has not risen from the dead, then there are five terrible results. Number one is found in verse 14. Our preaching is empty and our faith is empty. I've made that you know statement as one big result. Empty preaching and empty faith. This whole thing is just empty without the resurrection. Number two, he says in verse 15 that we would be found misrepresenting God. In other words, we would be liars. We, If we went around saying that Jesus suffered, died, and rose from the dead on the third day, we would be misrepresenting God if Jesus never rose from the grave. Number three... He says our faith would be futile. We would still be in our sins. So a third tragic result, if Christ had not risen from the dead, is that we would still be unforgiven sinners. Number four, he says in verse 18, that we would perish forever. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who died as Christians would be gone forever if Jesus did not rise from the dead. So the rec- rewards and the commendations of God would never come. And then finally, number five, we would be a pitiable people. He said we would be of all people the most pitied if in this life only we have hope in Christ. You see, coming to Christ solves many problems, but it creates many others. You begin living with a dual citizenship, you come under perhaps at times persecution. You have to stand for your faith. There's work involved. There's resistance of the flesh. There's sanctification and growth. It is not always easy to follow the Lord. So he's saying, look, if if all we have is the hope of Christ in this life, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. But in fact, praise the Lord, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In this paragraph, Paul asserts Christ has risen. And so here are some of the results that come if Christ is risen, which he has, Paul proclaims. Number one, he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, verse 20. In other words, we have a great status as those who will follow the Lord into resurrection life because he was the first. You know, in the Old Testament, they would give offerings to God called the first fruit offerings. It was a symbol of the larger crop which would follow. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first one to rise, to defeat death, and As the first, he is the first fruits as well. In other words, the rest is coming. Number two, because Jesus rose, we have a new identification, a new family. It says in verse 22 that in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. We're no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. We have a new family. Verse 23 says that we also have the hope of his Coming. He says, each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. So there is this hope of his future return for us, his kingdom, his coming. And then in verse 25, we have a fourth reason. He is going to put all evil under his feet. He'll put the rule of man and Satan to rest because he rose from the dead and then finally verse 26 the last enemy to be to be destroyed is death this is the pinnacle of his victory we have a champion in Jesus so pain and tears and war and murder and famine and poverty and sickness and disease and rape and incest and slavery and addictions and sex crimes and violence and hatred and every injustice will be removed by the lord Now back to 1 Corinthians, verse 27, he says for, and he quotes from Psalm 8, verse 6, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. What this is saying is that a day is coming when everything and everyone, including the Son himself, are subjected to God, are subjected to the Father. This, in fact, is one of the desires, one of the longings of God. It says in Ephesians 1, verse 9 and 10, that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, listen to this, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the desire of God, that God may be all and in all, that he may unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That day will come because Christ rose from the grave. Now that he rose, we get some results in verse 29 to verse 34. He says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, you're just kind of reading along in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then all of a sudden there is this freaky statement from Paul. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead is the question that Paul asked. What is he referring to? Now, I've read about 30 different attempts at explaining uh, the situation, the context, the cultural stuff that the Corinthians were caught in to engage in being baptized for the dead. And, and the guesses are wide and varied. It appears that that this is some kind of strange Corinthian practice. Jesus did not tell us to do this. The book of Acts did not practice this, and this is not taught in the epistles. And you kind of want those three things to be there to form a good doctrine. It's possible that the Corinthians got caught up in some kind of proxy baptism. Paul here is not owning it, and he is not approving it. If you're very reckless in interpreting the New Testament, you might actually be led to do this like uh, the Mormons sometimes do. But that doesn't seem to be the point. Paul isn't saying, hey, I've got a new practice I want you to engage in. Some people think that he's speaking of those who got saved when they saw how a Christian loved one died. You know, someone in the faith they they watched how they died just the strength the dignity and then as a result they were led to christ and they were baptized on behalf of the dead they saw the hope that in that person's heart because of the resurrection and that hope led them to have their hearts open to the lord and then they got baptized as a result but paul's point seems to be very simple you know you guys have some kind of hope jesus rose you have hope in this practice and so we have hope as well why are we in danger verse 30 in every hour i protest brothers by my pride in you which i have in christ jesus our lord i die every day paul paul is wondering you know look if christ is not risen from the dead why would i suffer as i have i'm in danger every single day now this isn't just spiritual talk that paul is giving his life was rigorous, it was difficult, it was painful. He he risked much for the cause of Christ. In Paul's mind, if Jesus had not risen, his life would change dramatically. It's a good little diagnostic in our own lives. How much in my life would change if Christ had not risen from the dead? What do I gain, verse 32, if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul had done ministry in a lot of places, including Ephesus, and it was difficult. He says, look, I even fought with the beasts at Ephesus. And if the dead are not raised, then let's give in to the Epicurean philosophy. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We've got a short period of time to party hard. Let's do it if there is no resurrection from the dead. You know Paul's statement here is that we have a point to our lives because of the resurrection. The resurrection gives our lives eternal significance and value. Do not be deceived, verse 33. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Uh, so, here, Paul seems to be saying, look, you know, you want to, as much as you're reaching out to the world and of course befriending anyone, you know, on earth, make sure you spend time with others who have allowed their lives to be shaped, changed by the reality of the resurrection. It will help you. But someone will ask, verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So it seems that in Paul's mind, the question is not an innocent question, but is a question that is filled with doubt. You know, okay, come on, how are the dead really raised? What kind of body are they going to have? And so he begins to give some examples from the universe that should have pointed them to God's ability to create different types of bodies. The first example comes from agriculture. He says, verse 37, And what you sow is not a body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed its own body. So here, you know, we, we can understand this analogy, the seed. Well, it looks nothing like the full-grown plant. But there's somehow a connection between the two. Our resurrected bodies will look nothing like our bodies now, but there will be a connection. One might remember in Revelation chapter 1, John's vision of Jesus, so unlike what Jesus looked like when he was walking around in the region of Galilee, but John recognized him. He said he's one like the Son of Man. He, He looked far different, but there was a connection. So here... Paul is saying, look, you know, God can do that with seed. And the second example is with species. He says, for verse 39, not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. Here he's announcing that God is creative. One look at the animal kingdom tells us that God has a wild imagination when it comes to bodies. I mean, fish, they live in water. They're constructed to be able to do so. Birds, they fly in the sky. Animals can do amazing things. Cheetahs can run up to 70 miles an hour. Marlins can swim 50 miles an hour. Falcons can dive at up to 200 miles an hour. Whales can make a sound, 188 decibels in volume, louder than a jet engine. A blue whale could be up to 200 tons in weight. A rhinoceros beetle can lift 850 times its own weight. A flea can jump 100 times its own body height. Giant squid have eyes that are as big as the human head. (laughs) You see, God is creative. He's able to give us a new body with heavenly features. That's why he calls it The heavenly body versus the earthly body, or the celestial versus the terrestrial body. They both have glory, Paul is announcing, but one has a greater glory. There is one glory, verse 41, of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. In other words, there's a difference between the stars, especially between the sun and moon. God created different levels of brightness. So he's saying, look, God can give a different and greater glory. So it is, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. There's varying levels of glory. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, here he quotes from Genesis 2, verse 7, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, shall we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Here again, we're being told that we have been transferred from Adam. We used to be connected to him, his tendencies, traits, and characteristics. But someday... We're going to possess a great likeness to Jesus, his tendencies, his traits, his characteristics. Now, he says in verse 50, he says, I tell you this. Here's how it will happen. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. In other words, he's kind of setting us up for the idea that in order to really inherit the kingdom, we have to have new bodies to be able to handle the kingdom, particularly God's full presence. You know, we're not going to be there in God's presence with little spacesuits to be able to handle him. No, we're going to receive new bodies to be able to embrace the fullness of God and his kingdom. Now, there is a line of thinking in the church today which teaches that flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, we inherit it in part. It's already here, but we have not yet fully realized it, and we are not going to fully realize it in these bodies of ours. No matter how much we believe that God has given us a mandate to create culture, the reality is, Romans 14, verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Flesh and blood, these bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God at least not fully. We, we've we got to get the new body to be able to get all of God's kingdom. Behold, I tell you a mystery, verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So quickly and rapidly, a change will take place. Now, I believe that Paul is referencing the rapid, the uh, rapture of the church at the last trumpet of God, not the final trumpet of the angels in the book of Revelation, but at the last trumpet of God. I think this is described also in First Thessalonians 4, verse 15 to 17. There Paul said, This we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This will happen quickly, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Uh, the dead raised, and those who are still alive on earth raised with Christ, recipients of their resurrected bodies. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. That's Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13:14. 14. O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So at our resurrection, the sting of death, which is sin, and the victory of hell, and the strength of sin, which is the law, will all be destroyed. You know, right now, they're still in existence. We have great victory over them in christ but we still grieve when people die we're we're still under that part of the curse so when that day comes we receive our resurrected bodies there will be great joy therefore my beloved brothers verse 58 be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain here's paul's application of the rock-solid truth that a resurrection is coming. He says, because of that future, you can live differently now. You can endure corruption and weakness and dishonor now because you know that a new body is coming. Remember that, that your work, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.